right. Good morning, New Life. Hopefully everyone's wide awake with a little extra hour of sleep. Woo! All right. Gotta love, love this Sunday. So as Preston said, uh, we've got a standalone message today. Brett actually said, hey, just you know, whatever you want to preach on, preach on, Sean. So I thought, what would be timely for this season of the year? It being cold and flu season, I figured, I figured it would be, you know, something that would be beneficial to our immune systems, okay? Something beneficial to our immune systems. And if there's one thing that our bodies need in order to fight off infection, diseases, it's rest, okay? It is rest. So I'm going to preach on rest today, which I think is probably a really good thing for preachers to preach on because if the sermon's terrible and you all fall asleep... I will accomplish my goal, like instant sermon application, okay? Before you fall asleep, stay with me for a little bit at least. So several years ago, I was working for a training organization, training athletes at the end zone called True Athlete Performance. We train mainly high school athletes in speed, conditioning, agility, and we had a lecture. We had a guy who came in, he trained Olympic athletes, and he was just helping us be better as coaches. And he says, all right, guys, so what is the most important thing you can do for your athletes? You know, in order for them to, to, to be at their best, what do you need to focus on? And so we kind of thought about it and we put up some ideas. We're like, is it, is it their training regimen? Is it their, their workouts, the program that we do for them? He said, no, that's not the most important thing. Okay, no. Well, is it, is it their nutrition? Is it, you know, watching what they're eating? Okay. No, it's not their nutrition. Okay, well, okay, it's not that. Uh, mobility, uh, flexibility, injury prevention, is that the most important? He said, nope, 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 nope. He says, the most important thing you can do for your athletes is to make sure they're getting good sleep. Okay, he says, that is the most important thing you can do for your athletes. Because then he said this, he says, because exercise is bad for you. <laughs> right, and some of you are like, I knew it, I knew it. Right, some of you are like, I knew it. Gym teacher's been lying to me all my life. But exercise is, is bad for you. He made a point. He says, you know, think about what your body goes through when you're exercising. Like your blood pressure rises. It's not usually a good thing. Your body temperature increases. It's like your body's like, there's like a fever. Like there's something that you got to fight off. Something isn't right here. Your heart rate increases. Not usually a good sign. And all your muscles begin to tear down and break down. It's not a good thing. The only reason why exercise is a good thing is when you rest afterwards and your body responds, reacts to all that stimuli and you actually are stronger because of it. But if you never rest, you never receive any of the benefits. And that's why when we open up the first pages of scripture, we see God saying, hey, I've created you to work. Like work is a good thing, but he commands us to rest. He says, I want you to follow my example. When we read Genesis chapter 1, we see God working, working, working. For six days he works. And what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. Yes, he rests. And he has given us this order. He's saying, hey, he puts Adam in the garden. He says, I want you to tend the garden. I want you to take care of it. I want you to work it. But you also need to learn to rest in order to have a proper relationship with the creator and with creation. Because work without rest will wreck your well-being. Okay? Work without rest will wreck your well-being. Now, I would imagine most of us, we probably understand that. You know, maybe, maybe some of the kids in the room, okay, we don't understand that yet. I know as a kid, my family reserved Sunday afternoons 
in the fall, okay, for Buffalo Bills football and then a nap, okay? But then the rest of the year, it was just, okay, we'd go to church, we'd come home, we'd eat lunch, and then we'd all take naps. And as kids, that didn't make any sense. That didn't make any sense to me because I'm like, parents, we've got two days of the week where I don't have to go to school. There, there are two days of the week that you don't have to go to work. And we're going to waste an afternoon snoozing? Like, come on, we got to be out in the backyard playing football. We got to be out, we got to be out doing something fun. You know, but my parents, because they were wiser than me and probably more exhausted than me, right? They, they understood the importance of resting and how healthy it is for us. But it doesn't always make sense to some people. Seneca, he was a Stoic philosopher in the first century. He looked at Jewish people who practiced Sabbath, who practiced one day of rest, and he says, this is ridiculous. He says, Jews waste one-seventh of their life in inactivity. And yet, God did not command us to rest, to ruin our fun, to, to, to ruin our productivity, to actually help us thrive in our world, in our relationship with him, in our relationship with the rest of creation. And so I'm going to talk about the importance of rest, but also how can we rest properly? How do we rest properly? Because I would imagine most of us, it's not the, the thing isn't, I don't understand the importance of rest. Sometimes our problem is resting actually doing it. King Solomon put it this way, Ecclesiastes 1.23, all their days their work is grief and pain, yet even at night their minds do not rest. How many of you, you get off of work at five o'clock and you just instantly go into relaxation mode, right? Recharging, you're not thinking about work, you're not checking work emails, not after five, not on the weekends. Or how many of you, when you put your bed, your head on that pillow at night, you just instantly fall asleep. Maybe not our reality, right? Maybe not our reality. Some of us, we know we need to rest. And yet sometimes it's hard to rest. It's not as easy as just clocking out of work. And so how do we rest? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, or get your U version out. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. But before we do, let me give a little context, a little background to this letter written to first century Christians. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who had put their faith in Jesus, but they were coming out of a Jewish background. They were used to relating to God, having their relationship with God based upon their ability to keep the Old Testament law. But now they're following Jesus. They're resting in his grace, but they're experiencing persecution. Their brothers, their sisters, their friends are saying, you need to stop relating to God through this Jesus guy and come back and earn your relationship through the law. And so they're being tempted to throw in the towel on Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is saying, don't do that, because if you do, you're going to throw out the most important person in the universe. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 says this. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. And so the author is talking about Old Testament saints, the Israelites. It says, For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger they will never enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, 
And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So what's, what's going on here? What, what is the book of Hebrews trying to tell us? What is God's word trying to tell us here? Well, it's, it's pointing back to a day and age in the Old Testament where God promised his people rest. He had promised them rest. Chapter 3 actually wraps up with a story about the Israelites and how God sent Moses to be their deliverer, to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, where seven days a week they had to work. They didn't get any rest. But they get out of there, and Moses says, hey, we're going to go to the promised land. And in the promised land, you're going to be your own bosses, right? You can have your own land. You can have your own businesses. You can take a day off. It's going to be so great. So they look forward to that rest. And yet the text is saying they get there and there's just like something's missing. Something's missing. They, they, the first generation they get there and they don't, they don't trust God. And so they don't even get into the land. But eventually Joshua, the text says, takes them into the land. And they get their own land. They have to fight off their enemies, but they get their own land. They start their own businesses. And yet there's something missing. They're not experiencing the rest that they thought they would have. Even when David, the text says that David was there and David said, no, there's something still missing. I'm king. I'm in charge. The nation of Israel is powerful. And yet I'm still missing something. Like, like God has promised us rest and I just don't feel that. I don't experience that. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you can relate, right? Because maybe all week long you, you look forward to the weekend, Right? All week long, you're just like, I, don't, I gotta make it to the weekend because this weekend is gonna be so relaxing. Right? We're gonna go, we're gonna, I'm gonna take the family, we're gonna go camping. It's gonna be so relaxing, so recharging, so rejuvenating. And you're all excited and you go, and then you come back and you're more exhausted than you were when you left. You're like, where'd the weekend go? Like, that wasn't very helpful. Or you're like, you're like, okay, this weekend, okay, this weekend, we're gonna, you know, it's gonna be great. We're gonna take our kids to sports in the morning. And then in Saturday night, we're gonna have a family movie night, game night. It's gonna be so awesome. And it comes and it goes, and you're just like, ah, like, where's the rest? Like, it's something, I feel like there's still something missing. Like, and so you're like, well, next weekend, you know, next weekend or next vacation. Like, and we're just always not getting this rest that we really desperately need that's where the israelites found themselves but the point of hebrews chapter 4 was that the rest that god promised to the israelites was not rest that they would experience through land through having their own businesses through being their own bosses it wasn't going to be found in, in experiences and events it was going to be found in a relationship with god through his son jesus and until we find this rest for our souls, the rest that Jesus offers us spiritually, we won't experience the physical rest, the mental rest, the emotional rest that all of us desperately need. To help us see this, I want to actually refer to the work of a Jewish journalist 
named Judith Shulovitz. She writes for different publications, one being the New York Times Magazine. Several years ago, she actually wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine titled, Bring Back the Sabbath. Said, bring back the Sabbath. She was raised in a Jewish household. On Saturdays, they would go to temple. They would do their thing. They would relax the rest of the day. And as a kid, she said, this was nonsense. Like, it didn't make any sense to her. Like, this is what? Why are we doing this on a Saturday? And so she says, you know, when she went off to college, when she became a young adult, started her career, she didn't practice Sabbath. She wouldn't rest. She would just work all the time. But in the article, she talks about how her perspective changed on resting and the Sabbath. And she does so by pointing to the work of a psychologist who worked in Hungary, the, the country of Hungary, in the early 20th century. His name was Sander Frenizi. And he started seeing clients who would come into his office and they started complaining about a sickness that would only afflict them on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, yeah, all the rest of the week, the rest of the week, they were fine, you know, nothing, no problems, but all of a sudden, Sunday afternoon would come. And they would start suffering with headaches, stomach aches, anxiety, little bouts of depression. And, and he looked at their lifestyle and he said, like, okay, what, what could be causing this? And he narrowed down the causes to one thing, and it was, it was the Sabbath. It, it was their, their day off. He, he coined the term Sunday neurosis. The disorder is Sunday neurosis. And Sunday neurosis isn't the, oh no, where did my weekend go? Like, the, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. It's actually just the opposite. It's actually just the opposite. Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, put Sunday neurosis this way. He said, Sunday neurosis, that kind of depression which afflicts people who become aware of the lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over and the void within themselves becomes manifest. Yeah, Sunday neurosis, it's that fear that some of us have waking up on a Saturday morning and not have anything productive to do. All of a sudden, we're alone with our thoughts, and all of a sudden, inside, we have this restlessness. And so even though the opportunity presents itself to rest, we don't know how to. We can't stop. So what's at the root? What's at the root of this Sunday neurosis? Judith Shulovitz hints at it. She gets to it. When she looks back in a time in our culture... When Chick-fil-A wasn't the only restaurant closed on Sunday, okay, this is way before my time, okay, some of you might remember this, but there was a day and age when on Sundays all restaurants were closed, okay, all restaurants were closed, businesses were closed, because as a culture we rested on Sunday. So she looks back at this point in history, she says this, she says, on that weekly holiday observed by all present day civilized humanity, not only did drudgery give way to festivity, and family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Yes, stirring the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. And so what is she saying is keeping us from resting? It's that voice that some of us hear in our head that says, you can't stop. You can't stop working because you're not good enough yet. Your work has not been accomplished yet, right? It, it's it's that, that voice that some students sometimes hear that say, you need to hit the books because if you don't get an A in all of your classes, well, then you're not smart enough. Or, or, or career-oriented people, you need to better last year's number because if you don't, then you're going to be a failure. Or if you don't get that promotion, everybody's going to think less of you. 
And it's that voice of that inner critic that says, you can't stop. You can't stop because you're not good enough yet. Do we have any Rocky fans in the house? Anybody like the movie Rocky? Okay, okay, Rocky, okay. I like some of the Rocky movies. Okay, Rocky Four is my favorite. I'll have to say Rocky Four is my favorite. But I remember the first time I watched Rocky One. Like I had never even heard of the movies before. But after my fourth grade year, it was like the first Friday of, of summer break. My mom says, "Sean, it is. It's time that you watch Rocky." <laughs> I'm like, "What is Rocky?" Like I'm like, "It's like about like a big stone." Like I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, "No, it's about boxers. It's about this boxer." I'm like, "You're gonna wall- allow me to watch a movie about guys clobbering one another?" Sign me up, okay? So, you know, we went to Wegmans, got the VHS. We watched it that night. And I was so enthralled with this guy. I was like, I want to be Rocky. I, wanna, I want to do one-armed push-ups, okay? I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to chug eggs, okay? You know, like, mom's like, no, don't do that, okay? Salmonella, don't do that. You know, I, I wanted to be Rocky. I loved Rocky. And that's why I was so disappointed when I watched Rocky too. I'm like, how could Rocky 1 be so good and Rocky 2 be so bad? Well, I, I think I know why. I think I know why. You know, in Rocky 1, the night before he goes up against the champ, against Apollo Creed, he confesses to his girlfriend, Adrian, what's motivating him to work so hard. He says this. He says, I want to go the distance with Creed so that I can prove to myself that I'm well, I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. You know, what, what, what's motivating our champion, our hero, to run through the streets of Little Italy, to clobber those slabs of beef, to run up, this, run up the steps of the art gallery in Philadelphia? What is motivating him? It's the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. It's that voice in his head saying, you're not good enough yet. You're not good enough. And does he ever find peace? Does he ever find rest from that voice? No. That's why they got to make 10 other Rocky movies. <laughs> it's like, come on. You're good. Stop. But they can't. Maybe you're not like a Rocky fan. Maybe you're more into the movie Chariots of Fire. Okay, this is another great movie. It's like one of the only movies I've ever seen that talks about like Sabbath rest. But it's a true story about two Olympic sprinters for the United Kingdom in the 1920s. One guy is named Eric Little. He actually becomes a missionary after the games, and he is so secure in his identity, his relationship with God, that when, that when he finds out that the race that he is favored to win, the 100-meter dash, that the heat, just the heat, the qualifying heat is going to happen on a Sunday, the day that he reserves for resting and worship, he says, I'm not going to run in it. You, if you want to change it, well, you know, I can go to a different day. But if, if, you're gonna, if it's going to happen on Sunday, I don't need to do it because it's not about me. It's about glorifying God. And Sunday's the day that I rest and I worship God. And so he doesn't end up running in this race. He ends up just, he's like, I'll just try my hand at the 400-meter dash. And he ends up running the 400-meter dash, ends up winning the gold medal. And he's like, oh, great, you know, whatever. It's all good. And yet on the other side, you have his teammate, Harold Abrams, who all throughout the movie, you see this restlessness in him. This, this wrestling match of him saying, am I ever going to be good enough? Am I ever going to be good enough? And so actually, 
right before the gold medal race, the final race, he is in the training room. He's getting stretched out. And Harold Abram says this. He confesses this to his trainer. He says, now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. And I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide, referring to the track lane, with, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. So why does he run? Why does, why does Harold run? To prove that he's worth the air that he breathes. To prove that he's worthy of life itself. He runs in order to justify his existence. Do you ever struggle with that? Ever, ever struggle with that voice that says you're not good enough so you've got to keep working in order to prove yourself, that you're valuable? I know I do sometimes. I know Adam and Eve, I know Adam and Eve, they heard that voice. Right? We go back to Genesis chapter 3. We go back to the very first pages of Scripture. And God, we see God creating the world. He creates habitats. He creates places for everything to live. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And all of a sudden, then he creates human beings. He creates you and me. And he says, it's very good. It's very good. But Adam and Eve, they're like, okay, thanks God for the compliment, but we don't think so. We, we still think we're missing something. We're not smart enough yet. There's something that we're missing. We need more knowledge. And because they didn't trust God, because they didn't listen to his voice, say, you are very good, they ended up working where they shouldn't have been working. They ended up harvesting from a tree they shouldn't have been harvesting from, and it ended up breaking their relationship with God, their trust with God. And what did it lead to? It led to shame. It led to them hiding. Then it led to them working more creating clothes out of fig leaves to try to cover up their shame, try to cover up their guilt, try to cover up their nakedness. But would any amount of work cover up their shame, their brokenness? No. And so that's why God came down and he shed blood. He, he, he shed blood and then he wrapped Adam and Eve up in the skins of those animals that he had killed, pointing to the future day when the Lamb of God would come down and shed his life to shed his blood for us so that we could be wrapped up in his righteousness. The book of Galatians chapter 3 says that all of us who have been baptized, we've immersed ourselves in Christ. We have now closed ourselves with Christ and his righteousness and what he has done for us on the cross. So the truth of the matter is when we trust God, when we surrender to him, the voice that Hebrews chapter 4 is saying we need to listen to is the voice of our heavenly father who shouts from the heavens when Jesus is baptized, this is my son. It says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And God says that about his son before he preaches, right? Before he performs miracles, before he's accomplishing things. He just says, you're my son who I love. And he now says that about all of us who are put our faith in Jesus. and says, it's not based upon anything I've done. It's not based upon my accomplishments, but about what Jesus has done for me on the cross. You know, that's why when Jesus, when he shows up and he starts walking the streets of Galilee, when he starts looking at people all around him that are trying to relate to God, trying to earn their relationship with him through things like keeping the Sabbath law, through rule keeping, he looks around at all these really, well, self-righteous people and he says, you guys don't understand what the Sabbath is all about. And so he really messes with their thinking. I love it. It's awesome. You know, just look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Jesus shows up at the synagogue one Sabbath day, one Saturday, and there's a man there that has a shriveled hand. His hand is all messed up. And according to the Jewish traditions, you weren't allowed to provide medical attention to someone who is sick. 
on the Sabbath. Like if you're a doctor, you're off duty, okay? Don't go to work on the Sabbath. If it was life or death, you could do it, but a man with a shriveled hand? Like you can't do that. So Jesus gets up, stands up, starts teaching, and then all of a sudden he sees this guy, he says, hey, stand up in front of everybody, stretch out your hand, and he heals him right then and there, which really, really irritates all the Sabbath police that were there that day. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? You can't do that. That's illegal. He says, no, it's not. No, it's not. And he says, he says, understand this. Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. He says, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. We don't have to be legalistic about practicing the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was created for you, for your own benefit. So you would have a right relationship with your creator and your creation. And then he says this, he says, because the son of man, me, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, meaning I am the one that the Sabbath says point to. The reason why God gave you the Sabbath was to point to your need to find rest in me. And that irritates them even more. And so they, they plot to kill him. And then ironically, by killing him, they make him the Lord of the Sabbath. Because on the cross, what does Jesus experience? Eternal restlessness, right? He's crying out. He's writhing in pain to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach in our lives when he says it is finished, right? From the cross, he's writhing in pain, but he says it is finished. The work is done. It's been accomplished. We don't have to work anymore because the work has been done. You, you know, oftentimes the reason why our work can be so taxing is not the work itself, right? It's not the actual work that we do. It's oftentimes the work behind the work. The work to try to justify ourselves, the work, the work that makes us keep working harder in order to prove to other people that we're good enough, that we're not a fraud, that we're not imposters. It's the work behind the work that makes our work so taxing. And yet when Jesus, when he was in the tomb, and, and people were saying, oh, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. Right? I guess he wasn't who he said he was. I guess he wasn't powerful enough to take himself off the cross. Did he feel the need to justify himself at that moment? No. He rested on the Sabbath. He stayed in that tomb. And then the next day he conquered death. And he invites us into that rest as well. So what can we do? What are some practical ways that we can practice Sabbath and rest in our lives? Let's end with that. Number one, very practically, very simply, trust God. Trust God. Wake up every single day and remind yourself that you are not the summation of your accomplishments, of your achievements, that you're, you're not a teacher, okay, you're not a nurse, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, okay, you're not a team leader, okay. Yes, you may teach students, and yes, you might lead a team, but you are first and foremost a child of God. That is who you are. That is where our identity is found. Rich Froning is known by many people in the fitness industry as the fittest man in history. But he only got there by putting his trust in God. I, I want you to watch this video to hear his story. Rich Froning has earned the title of fittest man in the world for four consecutive years. And he's the only competitor to ever accomplish that feat in the CrossFit Championships. But Rich will tell you his road to first started with a fall. In 2010, on his first attempt, Rich qualified for the national championships. We show up that first day at sectionals, and I was like, looking at some of these giant guys, I was like, there's no chance that I'm going to, you know, even qualify, um, end up winning my region, uh, and then went to the CrossFit Games, 
goal there was to not get last place. But Rich continued to dominate at the national level. By the end of the weekend, with one event left, Rich was in first place. His last event was a rope climb. So I jumped up on the rope in the final event and uh, went to try to pull, and I was like, oh, this isn't good. It's a little, uh, my arms are shot. There's no, you know, don't know what I'm doing with the legs. Guys are just flying up and down the rope. The guy that's in second at the time, Graham Holmberg, is just climbing the rope like it's nothing. Climbed the rope one time, hit the crossbar, started coming down, and then fell from the top. His fall came as a crushing blow to his first place standing and his identity. Although he finished second overall, Rich left the games feeling defeated. I'd made CrossFit uh, an idol. You know, it was, um, I'd let it define who I was as a person and, and put my self-worth into uh, CrossFit. I didn't enjoy what I used to love to, to do, is work out, I hated it. Looking for hope, Rich joined a Bible study called CrossFit Faith. After meeting one night, one of the members challenged his beliefs. And we were riding home in the car, and he asked me a question. He said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I was like, of course I would. You know, I, you know I've believed in, in God my whole life. And then I started really thinking about it, and I was like, am I living like, you know, the way I, the stuff I'm reading, am I living like, you know, we're called to live and put Christ first and, and to live for Christ? Maybe I'm not, you know, living like I'm supposed to. Rich started studying the Bible, and in May 2010, he rededicated his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized. Everything that I was reading, uh, reading the New Testament was just, everything was applicable to, you know, daily life. Trials and, and stuff I was going through, it, everything matched up. It was like, you know, the living word. You know, we talk about, you know, the Bible's living. And, and it was cool to see that, that for the first time, instead of just reading words on a page. Rich says immediately all of his priorities changed. My priorities went from, uh, you know, what, what can God do for me for, to what can I do for, for him? How can I change people's lives? How can I lead people um, to him? In 2011, 12, 13, and 14, Rich entered the games again and walked away a champion of the CrossFit Games and a champion of the faith. He has written about his journey in an autobiography called First. Galatians 6.14 is, May I never boast in anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's, um, you know, it's, whatever I do means nothing it, it it's you know it's not about me the CrossFit Games the four um, you know four-time fittest man on earth isn't about me it's about him and the talents that I've been given and, and it's my way to glorify him through what I do and see when we learn to trust God when we realize that our identity isn't found in what we do it gives it frees us up to glorify God and to be at our best and to rest properly and so if you've never surrendered your life to Christ in the waters of baptism clothe yourself with Christ man, I encourage you to, to do that put your faith put your trust solely in Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross second thing we can do is to take breaks take breaks can we have one day of the week where we practice Sabbath, where we say, I'm not going to work today in terms of doing something different than what I do six days a week. I'm not going to check my work email. Okay, I'm going to maybe spend time with my family. I'm going to spend time with God. In order for you to practice Sabbath, you've got to start that day worshiping God. Okay? Sabbath is not about you. Sabbath is about God, about reminding ourselves of where our trust is. And so you should start your Sabbath worshiping, praying, listening to his voice, 
listening to worship music, reminding yourself of where your identity is found. Take breaks. That will help you actually sleep when you listen to his voice to to still the eternal murmur of self-reproach. Sleep that we desperately need. You know that it's only when you get into REM stages of sleep, stage four and five of sleep, that your brain produces the growth hormones that your body needs to recover, that your brain needs to be able to be at its best. Okay, until we take the breaks from our work, we won't receive the mental, emotional sustenance that our bodies and minds need. So number two, take breaks. Number three, get accountability. Get accountability, right? There will be seasons in our lives that are going to be busier than others. There will be seasons in our lives where maybe you've got young kids, or you're starting a business, or you're in medical school, and you're really busy. And it's going to be hard for you to practice Sabbath in that season. But will you have accountability? Some people in your life that will say, hey, at the end of the season, I'm pulling you back. At the end of this season, you are going to start resting. You have that accountability in your life. Several years ago, my roommate Graham looked at me on a Saturday morning. He said, Sean, you don't rest very well. I was like, what are you talking about? And that sent me on a journey of understanding, okay, what is Sabbath all about? And how can I learn to rest? Because he was there for me, because he challenged me, because he held me accountable, I've learned a little bit better about resting. One thing I've learned is number four, we need to develop fun habits that help us recharge. Okay, can you develop a fun habit that helps you recharge? Something that you're like, I'm going to look forward to doing this on Saturday. It should be something that different than what you do the six days of the week. So if you're a fisherman, I don't think we have any fishermen, right? I don't think anyone like makes a living fishing, okay? Which is good news because what can you do on a Saturday or Sunday? Go fishing, Okay. Right? Go hunting. If you bake, if you're a baker, if you're, you know, work in a restaurant, don't use your day off to bake, okay? You know, order takeout, read a book, go for a hike. Do something different from what you do the, whole, the rest of the week. But allow it to recharge your battery and to thank God that he's given you this opportunity to enjoy him and his goodness in that way. And so develop a fun habit that helps you recharge. I don't know what your next step is when it comes to practicing the Sabbath, when it comes to listening to the voice of your Heavenly Father tell you that you are a son or daughter of God. But I want you to, to remember this one line. that As a child of God, you have nothing to prove and nobody to impress. Okay? You've got nothing to prove and nobody to impress because the one person that you're to live for already says, I love you. Already says that you are good enough, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that we can find rest in him. So God, on the days that it's hard to believe that, on the days that it's hard to trust, that we are enough because we rest in you. Help us. Help us to hear your voice above all the other voices. Help us not compare ourselves to the world around us, but to be grateful, to rest in your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.